It's good to be alive. You know, I think some of us got up this morning and we had a little chill to our bones with some of the cold weather. And isn't that just a reminder that we're alive, low, and we can shiver and praise Jesus for that? I just thank God for that. Um, I'm going to ask you all to turn. We've come as far as Luke chapter 4. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. One of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible, but Luke chapter 4. Anyone need a Bible, just raise your hand. While you're doing that, I want to talk to you all about something that's just been on my heart. I shared it with First Service, and I think it's pertinent to the chapter we're going to be in and the fact that Satan's going to uh, try to tempt Jesus Christ here, and, and certainly we're going to talk about that this morning. But as I've been just around the flock and around other people for the last probably year and a half to two, there's just been such a fear that is pervasive, not only in the church, but in the world. Um, many people are struggling with anxiety right now and just a fear because of all the things and all the news and shutting down and all this and what's going around the world. And I look, even if you don't turn on the news every morning, which I, I recommend you don't, but even if you, even if you don't do that, you know, unless you're a hermit and you somehow aren't talking to anyone else, you can't help but hear these different things that are going on. And I was just reading and listening this last uh, week in particular um, to a doctor that was coming out and he was saying, you know, based on the data, the peer-reviewed journals and the things, because we've had so much time to start to collect this information, I wanted to share it as a word of encouragement this morning in regards to what's going on with COVID and different things like that. Some of you may know that SARS-CoV-1, which is the predecessor to COVID-2, and it's 90% identical to COVID-2. SARS-CoV-1 has a lifetime immunity once you get SARS-CoV-1. I'm not sure everybody knows that, but if you can go to the CD website and CDC, and you can go to the website and you can see that it's 90% identical. So that got me thinking, because this doctor was talking about how he believes, and, and again, co contrary to anything I've ever heard, he was saying that he believes SARS-CoV-2 is the same way. Some of you know back in November of last year, I had COVID, and my wife and the family and some of the pastors here and pastors' wives had COVID. And so, you know, I had it verified through PCR and different things like that, the test. And, and I thought to myself, well, if it's a lifetime immunity, then why is there this fear and this boosting and all these other things that are going around this? And it just, it struck me a little different to see that. So I began to go up to the CDC website, and I said, what is the chance of getting reoccurring infection. What does CDC says? And even documented on the CDC website, I was shocked. The doctor pointed out, he said, look, this isn't my opinion. Go to, go to the CDC website. They even say it. So I went, I followed a citation and it says extremely rare. And so then just so happens this week, I watched an interview with one of the CDC's directors, this, this woman, and she said, excuse me, I know you're saying it's extremely rare, but do you have a documented case? And she says, no, we do not. You don't have a documented case in the world at this point of somebody who is diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2 and then has been reinfected. And she says, no, we do not. But we think it could possibly happen. And I, and I said, okay, okay, all right. No, you're human, you're, 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 you're precautionary, okay, okay. So I got interested in this and I started doing some searches on just you know, this doctor and some of the quotes and citations he had. And I started checking them, just like all of us, to be Bereans in the Word. I'm fact-checking, right? So I'm going through to his citations. And 
peer-reviewed journal after peer-reviewed, all peer-reviewed journals, and not one single one has, I, and I was astonished, a year and a half into it, and then if any of you watch the football, you know, or you know that just this week, somebody was announced that had, says he's been reinfected, or he's got it again, he's, his coach had it a year ago, and thought, well, but these things don't match then, something's, something's not right. So come to find out, what is the definition of reinfection? I thought, well, I need to understand this. So I turned around and I, I went, I'm not, a, I'm not a physician, but I said, you know, I'm a Berean, I wanna understand these things because I wanna bring encouragement to the flock, good news, good word, if that's the truth. So I went and I looked and I looked at the definition, it says one that has a positive PCR and then actually got an antibody test to confirm that, showing that, yes, there's antibodies developed, showing that you in fact did have that, so both add up, right? And then you check that again um, a year later and see if you still have antibodies. Well, I thought that was really timely. We have a Quest Diagnostics in our area. I said, I'll pay the $69. I'm going to go over and get the blood test. Being if I had it in November, if this what this doctor's saying is true, then I should have antibodies. Guess what? I do. I have antibodies. Not only, but high antibodies, just as it said. And I went, huh. No, really. I mean, I'm like, huh. So then I go back and I'm looking at the reading. I said, well, what is it then when people saying they're reinfected? He says, what's happening is, and then I, and it even quoted the CDC website. So I went back up there again. And it says that the PCR isn't 100% reliable. That a lot of times if you have a cold or even a influenza, it can trigger a positive PCR. But if you don't get an antibody test to validate that's actually what you had was COVID-19, Technically, that doesn't qualify. That, 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 and so then the research, I said, well, is there anybody in a peer-reviewed journal that did this? I mean, this is, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I can think that far ahead. I'm sure all of you are thinking that way. Is there any documented cases of that? Friends, there's not one in the whole world right now of somebody that got a positive PCR, got an antibody test, and then was able to reproduce that a year later. The doctor also went and said, think about our retirement homes. Think about, our, think about where this is so, he said, in your elderly population. He said, you thought if this was really reoccurring, do you realize the, the morgue that it would become? Because as they, it's super contagious. And if, they, and if it kept hitting them, then hitting them and hitting them, and they got better six months later and they got it again, and you'd have complete respiratory failure all over the place. And we don't see that. And yet now they're going to come out and tell us that we have to have boosters every six months. I, I just want us to stop for a minute and recognize, look, at this is Emmanuel, God with us. I know God's in control of everything. I know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in that world. And I know there's not a spirit of fear that God gives us, but love, power, and a sound mind. I want the body of Christ to come into this place and have a respite, to lay that stuff down, to be in the word of God, and to have a joy that swells in your heart this Christmas season like you've never had before because Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the truth and the light. There is no other way. And because of that, whom shall we fear? And the answer better be no one. No one and nothing. You be Bereans. Now, I mentioned in first service, I had one fact wrong. I mentioned in first service that I know they had uh, stopped Biden's 
mandate on the 100 employees or more. I guess I just heard yesterday, somebody came up to me after service, thank you, and says, hey, they, they reinstated that, but now it's going to the Supreme Court. My understanding is that once it does that, these facts are going to come out. What, what's happening right now is Satan just put all the chips in. He, he just did. He says he's all in. Because now all the data is going to have to come out before the Supreme Court about the things we're talking about right now. Not one single documented peer-reviewed journal, over 300 of them around the whole world, France, Italy, everywhere, not one documented case of reinfection. If that be true, and it is 90% identical to SARS-CoV-1, and that also be scientifically true, which it is, according to all the scientists, then what are we doing? And what have we done to a people but begin to try to bring them into captivity? A captivity that my Lord and Savior died so that believers in Christ don't have to enter into. You be Bereans. You seek your physician. You do those things. I'm not a physician. But I want to bring those things as a word of encouragement this morning because we're not hearing that good news. We're not hearing that people aren't being reinfected. We're not hearing that you know what? Colds are nasty and they're coming around and we're just getting... Because sometimes it's, it's all COVID. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. And the, the data doesn't show it. Is that, is that a good word? To start? Is that good news? Amen? Okay. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4 here. And I just thought it was timely because here Jesus Christ is going to be also presented with some false truths. And how does he handle that? Because remember, Luke's account and focus is on the humanity of Christ. He is still human and divine, but there's a humanity aspect to him that he is tempted, as Hebrew says, in all ways. Let's bow our head, we'll pray, and we'll begin. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, it's not our desire to get political. It's not our desire to be physicians. But Lord, we are Bereans. You've told us, be Bereans, test everything in and out of scripture. Test every spirit. Lord, we don't want to be disobedient. We, I pray you go before me. If I have this wrong, Lord, and, and, and these people have this wrong, and, and the medical journals have this wrong, Lord, I pray you bring light. But Lord, if, if, if this is what it is, then Lord, I pray you, you remove this spirit of fear that is coming upon your children, Lord. Be our people that are literally in anxiety and depression and all these things that are just absolutely burdening the hearts of the church, Lord, your blessed bride. God, I pray you will set captives free and free forever, Lord. So I pray, open your word, anoint your word this morning and speak into our hearts, Lord Jesus Christ. Let us get out of the way, not just me, but all of us, Lord, to hear your perfect will and your plan. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. All right, let's begin chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Luke. Please, uh, uh, let me just remind you one moment. The evidence that was given was given through the genealogy that Jesus Christ is Messiah. It explains that Jesus is Messiah going all the way back to the fact that he's a Messiah not only of Abraham, but of Adam. Adam was the first human being, which means he's Messiah of everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Let's operate under that understanding as we're going to go into chapter 4. Let's also operate under the standing that there was a water baptism that was done. And that water baptism was done. Jesus was without sin, but it was an example of the fact that 
we need remission from sin. We need to be redeemed. And that's what that was pointing to. But there was also something very significant that happened in chapter three, and that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the power of God to come upon us, the gifts of God, to be able to do the things and to live the life as a Christian, according to God's plan, his mandates in the gospel, that we would be faithful because we can do nothing good of ourselves. And that idea as we move into chapter four is entirely uh, huge because as he begins his Galilean ministry, it it's, keeps going back. We're going to see it three or four times in this chapter. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke is a physician. He is incredibly detail-oriented. If he puts that in there three and four times because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we ought not to miss it. Amen? Then Jesus being filled, there it is, circle it, with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Let's break this down here for a little bit. The first thing is Jesus, again, being filled with the Holy Spirit, a prerequisite, right? He, he filled, that's a required course, a necessary course that way, if I can say it. And then he takes, because of the Holy Spirit, he's able to go out and he's, enter, he's able to enter or do the works of the ministry, beginning even with the onslaught or temptation from the devil. So what's the prerequisite that all Christian believers need? The Holy Spirit. We need to acknowledge that. We ought not to wake up out of bed and run off because there's a need and not be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit so that we have the ability to do the things that God would want us to do in that moment, whether they be natural or of the supernatural. He says, filled with the Holy Spirit. He says he returned from the Jordan at the water baptism and was led by the Spirit again, second time right there, that power, that idea, into the wilderness. This was God that was drawing him out there. Being tempted, this Greek word and the idea behind isn't like he was tempted once. I think we read this so often, and we've got a, a comfortable with this account, that we read this and it was like, oh, Satan tempted Jesus. You know, he was hungry for 40 days and 40 nights. He hadn't eaten that way. Uh, so he's hungry and he just tempted him. No, no, no. The idea here is all the time. Tempted him day one, day two, day three, day four, all the way to day 40 and 41. The idea here is there was no relenting of this temptation. It wasn't like he just hit him once and says, you know what? Jesus, I feel really bad for you. I know you're the son of God. I know, I know you got it rough. You hadn't eaten and you're hangry, you're hungry and you're angry. You know, you hadn't eaten, you know, you, you're out here in the wilderness. You know, what's going on? I know, I know that's how it is. No, he doesn't say that. You know what Satan does? He's a coward. He turns around and he knows in your weakest moment, your deepest desire and need, he continues to attack and he attacks and he attacks and he keeps you down and he tries to overwhelm you because he wants to supplant doubt. That's what his, his goal is here. It's important for us to understand this, that as we grow in, as Christians, as we become more spiritually aware right? I think often we'll bring people, when we talk about spiritual warfare, what passage? Ephesians, right? 6, chapter uh, uh, 6, verses 11 through 17, we'll bring them there. That's the de facto spiritual warfare, principalities and powers. I love bringing people right here to chapter 4. I love bringing people to chapter 4 because this is a firsthand example of God himself who came in our, who is an example for us in that way, who came to forgive our sin, but in all ways 
was sympathetic because as a high priest, he endured, he received the same temptation that you and I receive in his humanity that way and divinity. And it was for 40 days. And he was just absolutely vexed. You know, when I say he was, he was, you know, kept tempting him, kept tempting him, kept tempting him, afflicting him, afflicting him. And I think we can all relate to that. In the days we're living, again, with this, this movement and spirit of fear from our government, from the world, from the media outlets, to try to ensnare us, entrap us in the fears of our minds, because that's what's happening here, that it's an attempt at a spiritual attack. And he, he's going to try to do the same thing here. You haven't eaten Jesus for 40 days. Why don't you do what feels good to your flesh? Disobey God. You don't need to do that. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But what, what, kind, of, what kind of things were, was Jesus dealing with? What kind of things do you deal with? What about when you get that call, you need chemotherapy, you need radiation, you know, you have an ill or something going on, a disease. You don't think that that physical attack, it's no different than what Satan was doing here. He was physically attacking Jesus because he hadn't eaten and he was trying to get him to disobey God. It's the same thing. What about the mental stress and the things that we go through? Like I said, dark times, the evil uh, being called good, good being called evil, things that, you know, abortion, things that we now know. I was just listening. I don't know if you heard the program on Hope FM this Saturday. It was a very good program when they were talking about a heartbeat. You know, they used to say, oh, it's so many weeks and days. And then they were talking about being able to see all the aspects of the unborn child that back when Roe v. Wade was, they didn't have any of that technology to see any of that stuff. And now it's like 22 days and they're trying to put in, you know, abortion clauses at 15 weeks. What? After 22 days, there, there's, there's heartbeat. There's things going on there that we, that we can now see. They can absolutely see even uh, on the, the sonograms or whatever you call the uh, technology, they could see different things forming. They could see if a child's a dominant left hand or right hand by what thumb they, they uh, you know, put in their mouth more often. All of this is happening. And you can't possibly declare this is not a child, a gift from God born in the womb that way to this woman. And the idea here is there's this, this mental stress and anguish that goes with it. No, no, no. It's going to be difficult to raise that child. You're never going to be good enough. You can't do it. No, no, no. It's better just to abort. It's the best thing for the child. This is the rhetoric. This is the lies of Satan going on to try to convince people to murder against God's plan for that child. So there's a mental aspect. Certainly there's an emotional. And let us never forget the end goal is always spiritual. It's a spiritual attack, and the idea of the Spirit is to get us to try to deny Jesus, to trust that God's protection isn't enough. Because ultimately, that was the, that was the plan of Satan. If I can convince Jesus, and it just shows you how insane he is, because he's God, he knows the word, he wrote it, but Satan's going to come up to God, who was in the throne room with him, saw him, knew him, and say, you know what, you don't have to do this this way. This plan that God the Father has for you, I have a better one. I have a better one. And that's what he spends his whole time trying to do is to, is to get people to worship him and doubt God. And he tries to convince them. And this is how he does it even with the Son of God. He said, and the devil said to him, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Please notice with me. Very important. This is, if you're taking notes, very Satan can't force you to do anything. He doesn't have the power over you if, if you're a Christian. He doesn't have any power over you. All he could possibly do in this moment 
was suggest to Jesus, disobey God. Turn these stones into bread. Why is that a uh, disobedience? Where in your scripture, in any of the harmony of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, where do you see it anywhere where God said, Jesus, it's time to break your fast? Doesn't say it in my Bible and it doesn't say it in yours. There's nowhere where God the Father commanded Jesus to break the fast before those 40 days. What has Satan said? Turn those stones into bread. What's that a direct attack on? Obedience. Don't obey God the Father. Your flesh right now is hungry. Elevate your flesh over God's obedience. That's what we want you to do. That's what the demons want. Elevate your flesh. What you're feeling, it's the lust of the flesh, right? The lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's the, right from 1 John 2, it's that flesh. And man, the flesh is strong. We're being honest with each other in here. The flesh is really strong. But we can never disobey God. This is a matter of obedience here. He can't force you. Please know that as a born-again believer in Christ, it's right before you here. He can only suggest. He couldn't force Jesus' hand, and he can't force your hand and my hand either. We have power in the name of Christ. We have power in the blood of Christ. We're a new creation. I don't think we even begin to understand what we are in Christ Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. So, Three things that we're going to see here as I just kind of pause before I go into verse 4. First, we need to understand the humanity of Jesus because we likewise, just as we read in verse 3, can relate to those things and say, well, if you couldn't do that in the humanity of Jesus, you couldn't force that Satan. You can't force it upon us. That's the first one. We just read that. The second one is we're going to see that God allows us from the Father because the Holy Spirit did draw him out to the wilderness so that he could sympathize, right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. You could look at Hebrews 4.15. It talks about it. How our high priest in all ways, right? He's, he was allowed to be afflicted. His, his humanity, his frame was allowed to be afflicted so that you and I can call upon a high priest that when we say, man, I'm hurting, you know, there's something going on. I'll just turn there quickly for you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain the mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Do you see that? This isn't just, you know, wisdom or, or man's idea. No, no, no. God had ordained this. He preordained this. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be afflicted in, in always in his humanity so that he could sympathize with us as our high priest, when we call out to him, when we pray to him, we can know that he knows and he understands and he can comfort us appropriately. Because it's not just a, it's not just a, I think you should do this, humans. I think, no, no. It's friends, children, beloved. I know what it felt like in the wilderness. I know when it felt like when I had those nails pierce me. I know what it feels like. And it hurts, but your father is worth it. I'm worth it, Jesus would say, because I'm going to redeem you from your sin. And this is all going to pass away because the earth is dying and anything, everything of it. Stay the course, beloved. Stay the course. 
That's, that's what he's sort of whispering into our ears. And this is what comes out of this. The second one is sympathy. And the third one is he's our example, right? He gives us the power through the Holy Spirit, the gifting of God to stand as well in the temptation. All of you have been tempted. All of you will be tempted until you go home to be with the Lord. But you have a perfect example of what it looks like in Jesus Christ, who is our example of how to fight in those times of temptation, in those times of trial. He didn't run away. He didn't back away from his ministry. He allowed the Holy Spirit to gift him in spite of what his flesh was feeling. Do you see the power of that? He was never put on a shelf, nor should we be. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, in spite of the suffering, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do you, do you see what he did? He, he, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He turned around and quoted scripture. There's the power. You, you like PowerPoints? Everybody goes to meetings. I'm going to point you to the power. This is the power. It's in the word of God. That's the PowerPoint. I'll point you to the power here. My, my pastor's father used to say that. He, he wasn't technological. He says, all oh, you know, these guys would present with the PowerPoints. And he says, no, I'll point you to the power. Take out your Bibles. He says, I'll point you to the power. He says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's going to the fact that in his flesh, his flesh wants food and desires that at that moment. He says, but that's not what he needs. That's not what man lives by. Man lives by God and the word of God. That's what he's saying. He says, there's the protection. It's, by, it's not by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil and, and let me just back up for a second. This is the lust of the flesh. You see that here. I hope everybody gets that. The flesh and the lust of desiring food is an exact attack of what Satan uses. And he uses that in our lives. It's, it's the same three every time. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Recognize these. You want to go to war? You know your enemy. When you go to war, you know the attack spectrum. You know how they're going to attack. How do you do that? You do recon. You do intel. You gather intel. You come, you get a debrief from the intel. You then create a battle plan. You take the battle plan, you execute on the battle plan. And what happens? You have, if you've executed and you had a supreme plan, you have victory, right? You and I have just been brought in to this amazing battle plan that God has given Jesus, God the Father, that you and I can partake of and are heirs of as well. That when we are attacked, the first thing we do is we pull out our sword, and that's the sword of the Spirit, and that's the Word of God. And we begin to read the Word of God and rely on that for truth, and that's what's going to strengthen us, and that's what's going to hold us. And we don't give an inch. And the reason I say that is because today, if somebody wants to debate you and, you know, there's a, a mighty, de hey, you know, this happens in this or this happens in that, you know, whether you want to debate about abortion or the sovereignty of God or any of those things that you might say would be in theological circles, many times those that are trying to debate you will say, put the Bible away. Let's just talk about this. Let's go to history. Let's look at these things. Don't you ever do that. You go to the word of God. This is where you begin. This is not something you compromise with. This is the authority. You begin with the authority and you bring them to the word of God and say, what do you got? What do you got? What, what evidence do you have? What truth do you have? This is the word of God. It's inspired. It's God breathed. I'm not putting this away. This defines what's right. This defines morality. This defines the spirit and the Holy Spirit of God. This defines what I'm to do in my life and what you're to do in your life and how to obey the Lord and stand in his grace. 
That's what this defines for us. He says, then the devil, right? Because anything else would be idolatry, friends. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So lust of the flesh didn't work. You know, God brought him back to Deuteronomy and says, no, no, you got it wrong, Satan. And you know you got it wrong. You know what you're trying to do here. You're trying to get me to disobey my father. And I'm only come to do my will of my father. Not going to work. So he brings him up and he's going to show him these things. And the devil said to him, all the authority I will give you. He's showing him the whole earth. Kind of like a moment of time. Think of it a time lapse. Like everything that would be. And he's letting him see all these things. He says, I can give all this to you. And their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Please notice that Jesus Christ doesn't correct him on any of that. The reality is, Satan is the God of this world. He's the prince of this era. Your Bible teaches you that. Hold your finger right here for a minute. Turn to 2 Corinthians, please, in your New Testament, chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Corinthians... Chapter 4, verse 4, please. If you look at chapter 4, verse 4, now I'm going to back up to verse 1, but the key passage I want you to see for the section we just were in Luke is verse 4. But I'm going to back up to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, if it is veiled or if it is veiled to those who are perishing, he's saying it is veiled to those who are perishing, those that don't know Christ, whose minds the God of this age, who is that? Satan, Lucifer, that's who he's talking about whose minds the God of this age has blinded, that's what he does, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what we read here. He, he is the God of this world, but we are the light of Christ because Jesus Christ lives in us and that light is so shown forward and it cannot be muted. It cannot be cast out. And so the very second thing is he's brought up there. He makes this declaration, Jesus. You see that distant picture of Calvary? You see yourself hanging on that cross? You're God. You're the son of God. That's no place for you. You don't belong on a cross like that. I worshiped you. I saw you in heaven. I know you were right by the Father. You and the Father are one. Don't do this. You don't have to do this. I can give you all of this. It's been given to me already. I can give it to you, Satan. Or, I mean, Jesus, I, I don't have to, you don't have to go to that cross. I got a better way, a more convenient way, a, a, a comfortable way, Jesus more fitting for your stature and calling, more fitting for your office as God. How about that? All it requires is that you worship me. I'll take all this away. And you know, at the end of the day, you came to redeem the earth. I'll give you the earth. 
but you have to worship me to get it. That's what Satan was saying to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? How often does he play on the lust of the eyes for us? Things we see, if you, do, if you had this, everything would be better. If you, if you had this in your closet, in your house, in your car, and you know, if you had multiples of these, oh, everything would be better then. You would be full and filled. You would then finally be happy and content. You know, I say it's a lie from the pit of hell because it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from Satan himself. You know, one day this is going to be brought to an end. Let me give you an example of that because I know this is where sometimes we struggle because I'm going to take you to Revelation 5 here in a minute, but I want, I want us to all be on the same page. Christmas is coming. One of the things we do, Jesus Christ gave us the greatest gift ever, eternal life when we've received that gift and believe in him as our Lord and Savior, okay? We receive that gift freely from the Lord. We're redeemed. We've been blood-bought, washed by the blood of the Lamb. So on Christmas, one of the things that we do, and as a tradition much of the humanity does today, is they will buy a gift, sometimes plural, gifts, but mainly a gift, a single gift, right? And you will give that to somebody you love, maybe a child, a family member, a friend, and you'll give them a gift. And you didn't, and I'm, I'm not going to look at some of the guys here, you didn't do this last minute. You actually went out and thought about the gift you were going to buy. <laughs> Work with me, guys. <laughs> and you bought the gift, and you brought it into the house. You've prepared it. You prayed about what you were going to buy. You bought it, you brought it in, you put it under your bed, and you tucked it away so that it would be a surprise on Christmas to give that gift. You might even have wrapped it already. Please wrap the gift. Do not wait to Christmas. Because you love this person, and they're your beloved, and so therefore you have taken those steps to make sure that everything is as right as it can be, and that there's nothing you're conveying is last minute, or that they're not important to you, or there's not a thought in you. Okay, we're all there. Check, check, check. Guys, work with me. So because you've done that, and you have that gift, when the gift is actually presented at that point, it's the, you might say, execution of what began before, many months before, guys. At least weeks before, guys, right? Right. Yeah, don't you lie in the house of God. So you turned around and, and you got it and you present it. In effect, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has already done for us. The work on Calvary, telestai or teleo in the Greek, means it's finished. The gift that he's given us, we realize today through the forgiveness of sin, the remission of sin. However, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, please. It's the last book in your Bible, in your New Testament. I'm going to take you to a passage that describes what will be, what's going to happen in the future. It has not occurred yet. Okay? 
Because I just dropped you into Revelation 5, I'd like to give you a little context. You always read a chapter before and a chapter after whenever you're being brought into context of Scripture. So that way you know that's good hermeneutics. Just how you read your Bible, chapter 4, chapter ever, that grounds you, anchors you in Scripture. What has happened in chapter 4, it begins with the words, after these things. That word in the Greek is meotauto. And what it's describing is after what things? After chapter 1 through 3, which describe the very age you and I are living in today. It has a name. It's called the church age. Because the church is present and the Holy Spirit is upon us and we're with, and with us. And guiding the church. There will be a time through the rapture where the Christians, you and I, believers in Christ, if it's our generation, will be raptured out and there will be no longer a church or a church age. You want to understand these things? Read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and it talks to he, Jesus. Is, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, by the way. It's not the revelation of John. I want to be very clear on that. If you read the book of Revelation, it's directly from Jesus Christ that he gave to John to write, but it's Jesus Christ's revelation. If you read the book of Revelation and you've missed Jesus, you've missed the whole thing. So because of this, chapters 2 and 3 deal specifically with seven churches, the church age. Every church can fit in some capacity when you line it up with the greatest scripture into one of those seven, truly. Every, every church I've been a part of, every church I've been in, can fit into one of the seven there, okay? We all pray and, and seek the Lord that we are the church of Philadelphia, the one church that gets the, the commendation from the Lord that way. It's not a fancy, busing church that you would think, this big mega church. No, no. It's a very, very beautiful church, a very simple church. The church where Jesus Christ is presented Nothing else. Nothing else. It's beautiful. Well, after that church age, in chapter 4, verse 1, after these things, it begins. And he, what happens is now John, kind of like a rapture, that's what we would think of or through vision, he's now taken up to the throne room of heaven. So the, the, the understanding, if you've been reading from chapter 1 to 3, you know that Jesus Christ is presenting what happened. He's coming to edged sword. 2 and 3, he's talking about the seven churches. Everything earth-focused, the, the, the perception, the, the focus is here. Terra firma, earth. Chapter 4, he begins, the Lord takes him up to the throne room of God. That's now where the, the, the visual is at. And likewise, in chapter 5, we're still up in the visual. It won't be till chapter 6 where you come back down because you start to see the judgments that are being deported out, the wrath of the Lamb in chapter 6. Everybody grounded before and after, just good hermeneutics. Chapter 5 here, the Lamb. And I saw in the right hand, verse 1, of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back. That should immediately capture our attention. I don't have time to go line by line and, and, and exegete every uh, passage, but this is unique. Normally, the scrolls would have only been written on the front, never the front and back. They're 35 feet long. They were horizontal, um, not vertical like we see. They were all horizontal. And they went up to 35 feet. As a matter of fact, we were reading the book of Luke. The reason Luke and Acts are two separate books is because you can't fit all of Luke in one scroll. It almost comes to the very end of a 35-foot scroll. And then if you begin the book of Acts, it would be sort of another 35-foot scroll. There is no way to have both in the same scroll. You just run a room if you're tracking with me. So here's a scroll in heaven that God the Father on the throne has in his hand. But yet there's something different about this scroll that we 
we don't see in our humanistic terms because it's written on both sides. Something different about this scroll. Okay, sealed with seven seals. That's also pretty unique. Seven, very important number. Then I saw perfection, right? Then I saw completeness. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? So the angel's declaring this. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look at it. Friends, guess what? We're there at this point. The rapture of the church has happened. The believers in Christ are there. We're all in this throne room together. And not one of us is worthy or able to open the scroll. Not John who's reading, you know, writing this down. And John's going to weep. He's going to weep because of this. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scrolls or to look at it, to even look upon it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep, John. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David, this is messianic. It's pointing to Messiah. It's all covered in messianic undertones. He has prevailed to open the scrolls and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood the lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, power, complete power, seven eyes, all seeing, knowing that way, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. You know what this is telling us? That the work that Christ has done, Jesus did on the throne. We just read in 2 Corinthians already that God right now, because of original sin and what happened in the garden, the title deed to the earth was given to Satan. He's the God of this world and the God of the earth and the God of this age. The prince of the air, as scripture teaches as well. The work that Jesus Christ did on the cross redeemed not only you and I, but he's worthy to take that back. And when he takes that back, because he has control now, and he's done all that he always did, but he is worthy because of his sacrifice. Without sin, he became sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God. Because of that work on that cross, he is the only one in creation and outside of creation that is worthy to take and open that scroll. And look what they do. We, we, just, we need to read on. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. That's your prayers and my prayers. Since this earth is began, the prayers of the saints, it says it actually, which are the prayers of the saints? And they sang a new song. Who's they? All of them and you and I. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. You better know this song when you get up there. Don't you embarrass me. <laughs> For you were slain and you redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. And made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Because now God has redeemed that and he's given it back. Is this beautiful? You can turn back to Luke chapter 4. 
just for time's sake, if you went to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, you'll find out what happens to Lucifer Satan. He's cast into the lake of fire that he and the Antichrist together will face eternal torment forever and ever and ever. And if I could keep saying ever the rest of the time here this morning, I would. Because that's exactly what's awaiting him. Verse 8, back in Luke chapter 4. See, that's the truth. But Satan doesn't present it that way, does he? He presents it like, you need me, Jesus. I can give you all this. I can show you these things. It's a lust of the eyes. You need it. Jesus. You know, I can only think, didn't you read Revelation, Lucifer? Or just skip out? No. He knows. But he's a coward. And he wants to deceive and trick and just, just destroy. Look at verse 8. And Jesus answered and said to him, you know what? Get behind me, Satan. I like that. Deuteronomy 6.13. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from her, for it is written. So now we've seen the lust of the eyes. We've seen the lust of the flesh. That was the first one. We're now going to see the pride of life. My way is better than God's plan. And this is the last that Satan will use. And oh, friends, it's the same game plan, the game book. It hasn't changed. It won't change. Lust of the eyes, lust of the fresh, pride of life. It all has to do with knowing God's plan for your life and obeying. Knowing God's plan, obedience. That's the Christian walk. God bless you. If you look at 1 John 2, 15, uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, you can see the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Well, verse 9, uh, 9 excuse me, he brings him up, shows him this area. Now, we read Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. Josephus tells us this is the southeast corner of the temple. Okay? At that time, and we know this from archaeology and history, and Josephus, being a Jewish historian, tells us this southeast corner where he was, where basically Satan has brought him up to at this point of the temple was, a, was a, like an immediate drop, Josephus tells us. And it was a 450-foot look down. Like, it just cliff, Like, it just falls off. And there was rubble and stone and everything below it. What Satan is saying is you are God, since you're God, why don't you just throw yourself off to that? And anyway, you're going to just plummet to your death that way, but you won't because after all, you're God, right? So this is why it's the pride of life, right? Which is my way is better than God's plan. And here's what he writes in verse 10. For it is written, see, Satan knows scripture too. Satan can open doors too. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. My favorite passage in all of scripture, my, my, my life verse is Psalm 91. And this is the passage that Satan basically brings him to. And, or excuse me, uh, yeah, brings him to. The devil uses the scripture, but he misapplies it, right? He he takes it out of its context. And why did he try to do this? Because he, he wanted to tempt Jesus to put his life in deliberate danger. That's what we see here, right? He's, he wants to turn around and force 
to try to force God in some way to have to act in some way or another to then save Jesus, right? As though he has to prove that God is God. You see, that, that's exactly what he's trying to do here. Again, Jesus, you're God. Just put, put your life in danger. Just jump off this, right? Because then it's going gonna, it's gonna to force God that he's got to act. Look at how Jesus responds to this. He catches on. Jesus knows exactly what he's up to. He knows what this is. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Look at how Jesus defines temptation or tempt, tempting God. Jesus is calling this presumptuous, what Satan did. Very, very important. To not know the perfect will of God and presume upon God is to tempt God. Does everybody understand that in here? This is a very important principle biblically that you understand, and I understand. That if we are stepping out, you've heard people say, step out in faith. We'll just take a step. I mean, it's okay, right? Look, there's nothing wrong with being directed by faith, but God is going to give you a very clear plan by speaking to you in the Word. He may not give you the whole plan, but he will give you a word from scripture of what you are to do and you are to obey that. You are to be in obedience in that. Anything other than that is considered temptation or tempting God because you're presuming that, well, Lord, I mean, I know right down the street there's a food pantry that's a need, be, I mean, you know, a community that's in need of food. You know, certainly we should open a food pantry and let's just start feeding people. I mean, after all, that's a good idea, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Is Jesus not the Lord? Could he not have taken himself off that cliff and would not, as Scripture records, the angels bared him up lest he dash his foot against the stone? All of that is very true. But did God command it? Did God tell him to take that step off that cliff? You see, if God is not telling you to do it, but you do it presumptuously without getting a word from the Lord, you're presuming, presuming upon God's direction. And in essence, what you're doing is you're tempting the Lord your God. I think this is one of the more misunderstood principles in Scripture. It's very, very heavy and it's very, very important. We need to pray in all aspects for the will of God to be shown to us in our lives. What we're to do, where we work, how long, all of those kind of things, okay? It's really, really important. Otherwise, we're guessing on God's will, and then we expect God to bless us. Because the very next thing we pray after we take that step is what? God bless my path and my direction, and Lord bless everything that has to do with this. And, you know, we're building a building, right? And, you know, as uh, the Lord steps forward in that process with us, guides us, leads us, it would be sinful, absolutely sinful, just because we have a need for space, to turn around and say, we're going to build a building and buy land and do all those things. If God had not given me passage in scripture, right? If God had not confirmed that then passage in scripture, if God had not turned around and had you all giving and raising funds to, you know, buy the land and to, to, to build the building, if it, it would all be presumptuous sin. It would be wrong, even though you might say, but we're running out of space. We need space. Well, God, that's for the Lord to figure out how he's going to enlarge the 10 stakes, as it says in Scripture. That's not for me to figure out. I'm to obey. And that's the same principle for every one of us. And Jesus draws them back and says, that's tempting the Lord your God. 
I, I, I've found this such a comfort over the years because so many times in the world, people, we got to go, we got to move, we got to do this and business and blah, 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 blah. And sometimes I love in ministry. Now, sometimes I'm right there. I'm like, hey, we need to do VBS. And it was our first year doing it. And we should do it in two weeks without any preparation. The church staff's looking at me like, are you kidding me? That's not a joke. That really happened. And, and, you know, but the Lord showed me. And, okay, all right, you know. But then there's times where, you know, wait a minute, slow down. Wait a minute, what is God, how is God telling us to do this? You know, we, we got a contract. For, what are we supposed to? Please don't, don't rush. Wait on the Lord. Every single decision, every thought, what you're going to do in your home, your marriage, your children, the schools, all of these things, take them and run them through the grid of Scripture. Get a word from the Lord and then obey. Then obey. And then all of the pressure is off you. And that's up to the Lord what he's going to choose, including the consequences. There's a lot of incredible wisdom in this. But don't ever think for one moment that Satan isn't going to try to use Scripture and take it out of context and try to trick you or I or deceive you or I with pride. Because it would have been pride for Jesus to do this, to act outside the will of the Father. And it's pride when I do that. I've done that. I've done that got to make decisions. We got to, and, and, I, and I make it, that's prideful. I got to repent from that. I got to, you know, these things are real. And in all aspects of our lives, we got we to bring these things to the Lord. God, is the answer, are you going to heal me? Are, is that your answer, Lord? Is that what you want to do? Not just to presumptuously say, yes, of course I want to. No, 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 maybe you want to call me home. That's better. That's better. It, it, it really messes up our theology when we think contrary to this in so many ways. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, why? Because we, we lean on God's will. He departed from him until an opportune time. Please notice that. It doesn't say he goes away forever and he never comes back. No, no, no. When's an opportune time? The very next time Jesus is hangry, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, suffering. It's the same thing for you and I. The times that we're at our lowest is the times our attacks are the greatest. And we feel so overwhelmed and we think maybe something's wrong with us. Are we going crazy? No. No, you're being attacked just like we read here. You're feeling overwhelmed. You know what? But you don't need to. You go right back to the scriptures and you open up the word of God and you read the truth of God and you realize God's in this. And as long as we obey, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be perfect. There is no such thing as a step of faith without knowing the will of God. Just let that sink in for a minute because I know many of you have been taught or thought contrary to that. That's not biblical. Don't let somebody convince you to do something like that if it's not of the Lord telling you. Be obedient. It's a good word from God. I think we'll read this verse, then we'll close for today. Now, I want to point out between verse 13 and 14 for your notes, there's about a one-year, you know, 
gap here. What verse 14 picks up in this passage is actually the second year of Jesus Christ's ministry. If you read John chapter 2 through 5, you would be reading the first year of Jesus' ministry. It's not in any of the other Gospels that way, but if you go to John chapter 2 through 5, you actually read the remainder of Jesus Christ's first year of ministry. What we're doing here and what the synoptics do in, in this case is we jump right into Jesus Christ's second year of ministry. So sometimes Matthew, Mark, and Luke, people say, oh, well, we're missing. <laughs> well, no, read John chapter 2 through 5, and you'll get the remainder of those things brought out to you from Jesus Christ's first year of ministry. But verse 14, just from reading and correlating it with a harmony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know this is the second year of his ministry. It jumps a year there. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. There it is again, the third time we're seeing this. To Galilee, where is that? The north, the north. That's the area of Nazareth. Well, that should seem awful familiar. Where was Jesus Christ from? Nazareth. And the news of him went out through all the surrounding regions. Everybody was facing booking it and Twittering it and all that. No, 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 they didn't have social. But you know what? If you read John chapters 2 through 5, you'll see all the miracles that Jesus Christ was doing. So all these people were hearing about it. And then as he starts to come back to Nazareth, where he's from, they're all like, this is awesome. We want to see these miracles too, because we've heard about it, right? Which is going to, what's going to basically lead us into uh, the verse is really up to almost 30 in the rest of this passage we won't get to today. But it's really important to understand verse 14, to understand the remainder of the passage up to verse 30, which is why he's going to make a big deal about how a prophet isn't recognized in his own hometown because they were looking for the miracles. If you just read this chronologically, you'd say, what miracles? Why are they asking? Because you didn't go to John chapter 2 through 5 to know that he had done all these other miracles in the rest of his first year of ministry, they heard about it. He's now coming and all the people know that Jesus is the Lord and he's doing these miracles. And they're saying, hey, what about us? We want to see these things too. You're the son of Joseph. What, what are you talking about? We know you. It's amazing how familiarity can do some things, right? Good and bad. Good and bad. He goes on to say, and the news of him went out through all the surrounding areas, right? Now, that's important because you know the Galilee in that area is predominantly Gentile at that time. There's a very heavy Gentile population. And so it goes throughout all the surrounding regions, and he taught them in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And, and this is going to set the tone, and I'll, I'll close us here this, this morning because I'm looking at our time, and I want to be sensitive to that. And how it's, it's important for me to just outline this as a foundation for you because he is he's... If you were a first century Jew or you were reading this in the first century context, this would make all the sense in the world of why he wrote this, the Holy Spirit wrote this the way he did for us, because it makes all the sense in the world um, of what was really happening. First of all, the implication here is that Mary and Joseph brought him to synagogue. They raised Christ in, a, in what we would say, I want to say a Christian home, in a Jewish home, okay, with the Torah and the Word of God. That's the first thing we, we get and is implied automatically within this passage. The, the very next thing that's implied is that this was prophetic and that God had already pronounced that there would be a light that would be sent to the Gentiles in the north. Some of you are saying, I'm not familiar with that prophecy. Remember I told you there's over 500 of them, and I try to bring out as many as I can for you as we go through. Turn in your Bibles just quickly to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, and you can look right at uh, verses 1 and 2. 
This was prophetic, that they knew he would go to the north. Messiah would do this. It's, God had proclaimed it through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before this actually happened. And it was, it was an encouragement to that area. <clears throat> nevertheless, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee. Exactly where Jesus Christ, the north, and that's Nazareth. What does it say? The Galilee of the Jews? What's it say in your Bible? Of the Gentiles. Very, very important. The people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. Didn't Jesus Christ promise and didn't Scripture promise that he would come to set the Jew and Gentile free? It was prophesied. This wasn't coincidence that he just went north. It was already foreordained by the Father. Isn't that cool? So cool. So we turn around, and that, that's the first part to understand that. The second part that I need to bring is the idea of a Jewish uh, synagogue service. How many of you have been to a Jewish synagogue service? One, two, maybe three? Okay, three of you. So then you know what I'm going to tell you, right? How, would it, how did the synagogue service begin? It begins with a prayer of blessing, just like we would here. Now, maybe the synagogue service you went to slightly changed. They call them reform today. But back 2,000 years ago, that's how it would, be, it would start. We'd start with a blessing, right? We pray unto the Lord, anoint the word. That's what they would, the rabbi would do in that day. The second thing would be a, a declaring of the Hebrew faith. How would they do that? They'd go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, they'd go to verse 4, and they would read the Shema, right? The Shema, okay? The Lord God, the Lord is one, okay, right? All right. The next thing they would do what is they would begin to have prayer. That was, it was almost like what we do on Sundays, which is a corporate prayer. They would have prayer amongst each other. Now, Reformed sort of don't do that anymore in the synagogues. But back in the day, that's how they used to do it. They'd have almost like a corporate prayer for all the needs, intercessions for the different people and the things that are going on. A after that, they would have time of scripture in Torah. So they would open up the Torah and they would go really to the Pentateuch, which are the first five books. And they would spend the time sort of in the law and, and, and go through, you know, Genesis, Exodus, you, you know what the Pentateuch is. Okay. The next thing they would do is they would go to the prophets. They would have a time for the prophets where they would go to the, the, the major or the minor prophet that way, and they would read. This is very, very significant. At that point, the rabbi or teacher would signal to the congregation that had been gathered, he would sit down. Okay, when he sat down, if there was anybody sitting at that point, they would have stood up. And what that began to tell you is that the sermon is now going to begin. And it would have been a brief sermon right? Because the word of God, we do it all in one here, but the word of God would have been read, uh, both the Torah and, or the Pentateuch and then the prophets, uh, the wisdom books, and then uh, at times Proverbs, things like, and then what would happen is they would turn around and um, uh, Jesus, in this particular case, we're going to read about it. He turns around and he stands up and, or sits down, excuse me, I meant to say, and by sitting down, that's communicating to everybody in the congregation or in the synagogue at this point that the teaching is now going to begin, right? And then finally, it would be closed with which, what we're about to do here in a minute with a benediction and a blessing upon the people. Then they would leave and go. And that's what a synagogue service was, okay? 2,000 years ago, again, some of the reform, they've changed a little bit today. I want to point out why this is powerful and important. 
and, and it helps to understand the culture of what was going on at that time and the attack against what I'll call the church at that time. This is what Jesus Christ did when he was physically manifested and came to earth. You've heard me say it for years in here. He came and he taught the word and he did it line by line and verse by verse. It just wasn't my idea. This wasn't a slogan or something. That's what we're going to read in scripture. And he did it very methodically as it was one, he was raised in that. And that was the way Mary and Joseph, as they went to synagogue. But the most important part is that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, what other choice did Jesus have? A lot of them, but particularly what other choice at that time? In some of the other synagogues that were meeting, what would happen is they had already begun to become reliant upon commentaries. Most of you know what commentaries are. It's not the word of God. It's, it's sometimes when you see a pastor or teacher, they'll get up and they'll read one verse or like two or three, and then they'll talk for like an hour, right? That's actually, con that's very similar to what they did. Some of the synagogues in those days, not Jesus, but they did. And it was, it was a commentary. It was, a, it was the way they did it, okay? And what there was two main schools of commentary at that time. What was the one? Hillel, right, was one. Shimei was the other. Both of these are men, and they were competing with what? The scripture. You see, when you really study Jewish tradition, and you, and you look at the oral traditions in the Talmud, and you look at the Torah, and you look at Jewish history, even Joseph, you start to realize that the things we see today that try to creep into the church are really nothing new, but it's something Satan has already done once before or an attack or a temptation before. And what I want you to see very clearly here is Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come in and say, well, as you know, your Hillel says this, or hey, as you know, Shimei says this. What he's going to do is he's going to open the word of God. He's going to read from the prophet Isaiah, who is the Lord Shatera will get there next week. But I had to lay this foundation for you so you understand if you read ahead, that's what's happening. And then he's going to sit down, which would communicate all eyes on him, and effectively say to you, this has been fulfilled before your hearing. Because you would read, you give explanation, and then you gave application. And that's what every rabbi worth their salt and teaching would have done. There was none of this. We're going to pick a theme, a top, you know. As a matter of fact, Jesus stayed away from that. That was called commentaries. It wasn't, we weren't interested in what man had to say. What does the word of God say? I'm not telling you there's not godly men in churches doing that today. There are. Far be it for me to judge anyone's heart. But I wanted us to understand the foundations of these things. And when Jesus came, he could have done it that way or this way. And he chose to go line by line verse by verse, give explanation, give application, and give a blessing. That's what our Savior and our Messiah did. That's the example in this church that we follow. We follow Christ Jesus. Musicians, please come up. I'd invite you to stand. We're going to close in prayer. I, I, I thought it was important to understand why we do what we do. Hopefully that was helpful to all of you this morning. When you look at some of these things, if you read ahead, you start to understand why he's going to talk about liberty and the captives being set free. 
because that's exactly what was happening back then. Shimei and Hillel had begun to come in and teach oral traditions that were somewhat controversial compared to scripture and led people away from the Bible or Torah at that time with different ideas. Can I fill in a blank? A social justice gospel. Can I, can I fill in a blank? Critical race theory. Can I fill in a blank? Uh, redefining what homosexuality or God's plan is. Can I fill in the blank? Defining that abortion is not murder. Can I fill in, I, I can do this all morning. That is what happened. And if we're not careful as a church, the body of Christ, I'm not just talking about Calvary Chapel. If the body of Christ, the Lord, his church is not careful to stay to the word of God and honor the Holy Scriptures and to be obedient, we will find our very, self, very same place as these men and these commentaries and these wisdoms. Look, there's nothing wrong with a commentary to read to help you with your study if you, if you do that. Guzik has some good ones and all that. But friends, nothing is ever going to replace the word of God. This is what's anointed. This is what's holy. This is what's God-breathed. And this is what was given for you and I to understand God's love, his commandments, statutes, and judgments, that if we would obey them, it would be well-pleasing to his heart. Father, we just thank you this morning. Thank you for the promising word and encouragement that you've given us to stay the course. Thank you that, Lord, you've given us a blueprint of even what it looks like when temptation comes. That, Lord, we, as you were Jesus, you have overcome, and because you have overcome, we have overcome, Lord. We pray for that fresh filling on baptism of the Holy Spirit here this morning, Lord. We need this, as you needed it, Jesus, in your humanity 2,000 years ago as an example to us, Lord. We need those gifts to be able to do the things that you would have us to do and our Father would of the, of the works of the ministry, Lord, in our lives, in our jobs, in our homes, and with our children. Father, I pray you would anoint our time uh, the rest of the day as we spend in your word or we spend with other people bringing that light to those that are blind, to those that have not seen light because they've been surrounded and submitted to darkness. God, I, I pray you continue to give us victory and not lead us into temptation Lord, I pray you remove all of the wiles of the enemy before our miss. And I pray, God, you would give us the beautiful blessing of just your heart. Lord, that you would be with us, in us, that you would guide us. And that, Lord, we would be one with you, not able to be separated. Your thoughts would become our thoughts. Your heart would become our heart. We pray and we ask all of this by your power, through your glory, and for your name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed. Amen.